Seeking God's ways. That's the theme for this Lenten season that's provided for us by the Leader magazine and that's captured in the Isaiah passage that Rachel read at the beginning of today's service. It's on your bulletin. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the leader's editors put it, quote, the scriptures for each Sunday in this season reveal a truth about the ways of God, as well as the many ways that we, God's people, get it wrong. Today, as we seek God's ways, we move from the fear that there is not enough to the freedom of living within God's abundance. It's the focus statement for today. Now, why don't we think about that? There are a lot of us who experience stress and some measure of dissatisfaction that comes from that stress. We do a lot of lamenting. Time is in too short a supply to get all the things we think we need and want to get done. The pandemic has imposed many limits on us, affecting especially how we interact with one another. The political climate in this country is frankly, frankly pretty depressing, with little outlook for improvement. And a war is raging on a continent that had been largely free of it for our entire lives. One could easily view the glass today as half or even more than half empty. Today's scripture, the second scripture from John's gospel that we just heard, recounts a story of Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Jesus' friends and followers from the village of Bethany. Mary took an expensive perfume and anointed Jesus' feet, drying them with her hair, a tender gesture that expresses her and her siblings' love for Jesus and also foreshadows how his body will be anointed after his death, which was fast approaching when this event occurred. Judas, as we heard, takes issue with Mary's gesture quite openly. And according to John, he inserts a parenthetical there, kind of insincerely, right? He sort of has a little bit of a, a poke at Judas there. Judas was complaining that this was a waste of, of precious resources. He said that the perfume could have been sold for a hefty price and the proceeds directed to the poor. So Judas's words at least are seeing the glass here as mostly empty. So how does Jesus respond? His response is direct and takes us and perhaps the others in that Bethany home that day maybe a little bit by surprise. He says, leave her alone. Mary bought this so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, somebody just hearing that might think Jesus is reacting kind of narcissistically, right? But come on, we know better. Jesus' fundamental message throughout the Gospels is one of, not of narcissism, but of empathy and altruism. Those are the very opposites of narcissism. So we need to unpack that a little bit, Jesus' reaction. One way to understand it, and remember he's reacting to Judas's grumbling, is maybe this. God wants us to do good work and to live lives according to God's will. And God gave us the perfect role model to follow, Jesus. 
And part of that means that we are not called to labor 24-7. From the very beginning, the seven, the Sabbath, was commanded to be a day of rest. God expected that the world would continue to turn on its axis on the Sabbath, that there would still be poor and otherwise distressed people on that day. But God also recognized the human's need to understand that, in fact, we are not in control and that we need regular breaks. As we sang just a little while ago, God is singing to us. God is comforting us. Yes, God expects us to, quote, resist injustice, hate, and force. But every now and then we need to, quote, take a holy breath and sing. As Jesus invites us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, very familiar scripture to folks, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I think another message in Jesus' defense of Mary's use of the precious perfume is a reminder that we should not get hung up on worldly things. By redirecting attention to himself for the moment and his impending death, Jesus is calling his companions there in Bethany and us now to turn to God and remember what God wants for us, which is less about stuff and more about love. Jesus is not saying that serving the poor is no longer important. Any more than God is saying that our everyday work is somehow not meaningful because God commanded us to rest every now and then. It's about balance and not losing sight of what really matters. This is my reading also in the first scripture that we heard from Philippians that Norm read. I'm going to reread it, but this time in the Living Bible Translation. Um, first, I thought I'd go to the message, and I did, and then it got a little bit too 70s colloquial. <laughs> and the, the, his synonym for rubbish, <laughs> which comes up in some of the translations, was not my vocabulary. I thought, eh, I'll keep looking. <laughs> and so I came across the Living Bible Translation, which is verses, I'm just reading verses 7 and 7 through 11 here, but I think this kind of captures the the vernacular sound that's kind of that helps us sometimes, but but uh, doesn't take us to back to 1975. But all these things that I once thought were very worthwhile, again, this is Paul speaking, not Norm. <laughs> now I've thrown them all away so that I can put my trust and hope in Christ alone. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've put aside all else counting it worth less than nothing in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with God's self depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. Now I've given ev up everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life 
of those who are alive from the dead. Last fall, I read an interesting op-ed piece in the New York Times that was titled, How Liberals Can Be Happier. The article was written by researchers who do not situate themselves on the progressive end of the social and political spectrum. Kind of, you know, went to the bottom and sort of see who these people were and where they came from. And knowing that, I approached the piece with a little bit of caution, right? Knowing that they were not on my wavelength. But it was interesting. Their research and research of others into why, as they say, and this is borne out objectively, that political liberals or self-identified liberals are on average less happy than conservatives in this country, leads to an intriguing insight. One of the quotes they had in there was from a professor at Harvard whose politics were not theirs, actually, a little bit more on the left of center spectrum. His name is Arthur Brooks. And this is what Arthur Brooks had to say. A lot of our happiness is out of our control. It's based on genetics and circumstances. But some of it we can't control. It requires that we invest in four things each day. Faith, family, friends, and work in which we earn our success and serve others at the same time. At the conclusion of this op-ed piece, the authors wrote, individual happiness is more likely to be found not by directly pursuing it, but by embracing social institutions that call on us to focus first on the welfare of others. Individual happiness is more likely to be found not by directly pursuing it, like going out and finding what makes us happy, but by embracing social institutions, community institutions, groups of people that require us to focus first on others and ourselves secondarily. And isn't, quote, focusing first on the welfare of, the, of others Jesus' basic message? So let's go back to the home in Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were living on that afternoon when Jesus and his followers set aside their work in serving others. This was downtime. This was dinner time. This was chilling, right? Relaxing. They were spending a moment together with quality time in a setting that clearly links three of these ingredients of happiness that I just mentioned. The faith part, clearly. The family part and the friends part, right? Faith, family, and friends were all there. But they did set aside that work in serving others thing, right? For the moment. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised to know that singing was part of the fellowship that Jesus and his followers enjoyed that day. And I was kind of curious, I, you know, not offhand, I was thinking like, are there instances in the gospels where Jesus sings? And it's like, yeah, there are actually. If you Google like Jesus and singing, there are a few, few references to that, right? So he was a singer too. And think about it. Yes, we can talk about things like work songs, right? You know, things like chain gangs and, you know, these sorts of things where people are singing while they're doing work. But by and large, singing is mostly a kind of, we could say, a downtime activity, right? But downtime doesn't mean like tuning out or doing something that's wasteful or insubstantial. We experience it right now. 
In thinking about this scene here in terms of like the priorities in life, I'm reminded of a wall hanging that I've seen in many, many plain Anabaptist homes. It spells out the word joy. Have you ever seen that before, anybody? Maybe you've seen it in others. So it's like J, do you know what J stands for? Jesus. O, others. And why? You, yourself. Right? So Jesus before others, before yourself. As somebody who works in a very secular institution and teaching a lot of secular subject matter, I have a way to kind of f to fiddle that thing into my, into my courses every now and then. Right? I'm not saying that this is something that they need to adopt or that they need to be Christian or something like that. I'm just simply saying it's like this is one way of kind of setting priorities. Right? J-O-Y. We can be grateful that the scarcity that we typically perceive in our immediate surroundings, like looking at the glass as being half empty, three quarters empty, maybe even just 10% empty, but empty rather than full. That that scarcity that we often perceive and that we lament is really offset by God's abundant love for each, each one of us. And this is love it's not just that we take and run away with, it's something that we share with one another in settings exactly like we're doing right now, right? This is a setting of love. We're here not for selfish reasons. We're not here to, you know, grab Rachel's nard <laughs> mixed with olive oil and run out to the next pawn shop and make a buck off of this. We're doing this because we love one another. It's kind of like the setting back in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right? And you know, I love that song that we just sang, the Together song, or we sang earlier. You know, yeah, we heard it a lot in that fall of 2020. It was kind of our theme song for the fall. I love it. I really got into it. And it's not just that it's really cool in terms of the music, but I think the words are really nice too. And so I want to just read this last verse together by way of closing things up today. We will sing our song together, sing in harmony. We will sing our songs together, whether two or three. Jesus feels our pain. He sets us free. The Spirit's given us this song of hope to sing. God, we surrender. Just give ourselves up. Bring us together. Bring us together. Amen.